If you have a, a Bible in front of you, please turn with me to, to Ruth. Uh, to Ruth, And uh, I want us to consider this evening uh, the three main characters uh, in this chapter. The book of Ruth is a wonderful um, book in the sense of uh, the chapters are so well divided. It would do, uh, it would make a very good uh, play, if you will. It, it's, it lends itself, the, the scenes are very simple and very dramatic. And the content is, uh, well, it's the word of God, so it's, uh, it's more than superb, isn't it? But the three main characters we have here, uh, Naomi, Ruth and Orpah. And um, they all, if you will, have a, a, a story. They all, if you will, have a, a place they've come from and a place they're going to. So I just want us briefly uh, to look this evening at those three main characters. Now, the book of Ruth uh, starts with um, some... Uh, very inf- in, uh, some very helpful information at the very start, the very first sentence. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. And if uh, you've read anything of the book of Judges, the preceding book to the book of Ruth, you'll know really that it's a spiritual roller coaster. Uh, the people have their spiritual ups and their spiritual downs. And uh, it's hard to say, but probably more down than up, really. But the last sentence of the book of Judges says it all. Uh, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And uh, we're given some more information in the second clause of the first sentence. There was a famine in the land. Now... Under that old covenant, uh, God very much uh, was informing his people uh, by uh, what would happen. So if there was a famine, it was because the people had disobeyed God. The covenant of blessings and cursings. Obedience, blessing would follow. Disobedience, curses would follow. And uh, the context then within which we find uh, this, this book... It was a spiritually barren time. That spiritual famine was reflected in a, uh, a physical famine. And the people should have wakened up to their spiritual reality. They should have realised that they were displeasing God in their lives. That they were doing what was right in their own sense. Remember what we saw this morning. That essentially to sin is to not do what God uh, requires or to do what God tells us not to do. And ultimately, it's robbing God of his glory. Here was a land where the people were robbing God of his glory. And so he was judging them. He was making them aware of where they stood. And having been given this broad picture of the state of the land at that time, uh, we're then zoomed in, we're then focused uh, towards a family just an ordinary family. The father, Elimelech, the mother, Ruth, uh, Naomi, whose name means pleasant, and then their two boys, Marlon and Kilion. And we're, we're given the context in order to then tell us about the re- reaction, the response of this family. What should this family have done? This family should have got together, this family should have met at the family altar, This family should have called upon the Lord in repentance, but they didn't. What did they do? Well, 
They sought to do what was right in their own eyes. They sought to put the problem right themselves. Instead of crying out to the Lord for mercy, they sought to fix things themselves. Surely Elimelech and Naomi had good intentions. The very possibility of their children starving. We need to do something about this. Good intentions, but mistaken and ultimately disobedient. And so they take the decision to go to Moab. Why is that significant? Well, remember Lot. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that uh, destruction, that judgment that came upon that city. Remember what happened in the mountains uh, with uh, Lot and his two girls. Remember the fruit of that. A child was born out of the el- of, of the, and the elder one. The, the race of Moab was formed. And that race went on, that, 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 uh, that tr- country, uh, that people went on then to be utterly rebellious towards God. To have no thought for him whatsoever. To be a godless society. And so Elimelech and Naomi's answer was to try and fix the problem and to go from where they were, which was under the banner of God's love, albeit he was judging them, to go from there away from God to Moab. There's a spiritual lesson being taught here. They went away from God and they went to Moab. Friends, if there are any amongst us here this evening who have problems, and problems due to their own sin, the answer isn't to try and fix it yourself. The answer is to get onto your knees and to repent. Well, they didn't do. And so we'll see how they get on. We'll see how they get on. You see, they go and they, uh, they go and they would they go to dwell. And there's this inference that it was for a while until things pass over. And they would have, uh, undoubtedly, they would have comforted themselves to say they were doing it for the good of their children. They would have, uh, when they arrive at Moab and there's a good plate of food put before them, they would have, I'm sure, given thanks to God for his provision, the irony of it, you see. And they would have thought to themselves, well, this was a good choice. Look, look at what's happened. Look at the results. The results, the ends have justified the means. This was a wise choice. Surely they would have considered that amongst themselves. Well, what happens? We're told, verse 3, tragically so, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. So there is Naomi. And she has her two boys with her. She's now a widow. What does she do? Does she return to Judah? Does she cry out to the Lord? Does she seek his face? No. You see, we're told uh, later on in verse 4, they took wives of the women of Moab. I'm sure that wasn't uh, in their conversation when they were travelling to Moab at first. It was just for a while. It was just to tide them over. It was, it was a means to an end. It was just to provide food for these young children. These young boys grow up. They need wives. Well, we're there. What's wrong? What's wrong with taking of the wives of Moab? Well, it was explicitly against God's law. It was ever so wrong. They shouldn't have, uh, no offence to the Moabite women, but they shouldn't have been touched with a ten-foot barge pole. But instead, you see, once again, there's a need Pragmatism demands, let's fill that need, let's do what is right in our own sight, and let's find wives for these sons. 
Can you see the fall? Can you see that slippery slope? Taking matters into our own hands. And at first it seems to go well, but gradually the wheels come off. Well, what happens? They dwell there ten years. I'm sure they never uh, considered that they would be there such a long time. But they get comfortable, they settle, they stay. And then, verse 5, both Marlon and Kilion also die. Now, Naomi, you're left a widow. You're left childless. You're left with two daughters-in-law. What will you do? Now, it's interesting how Naomi interpreted what was happening to her. We're given the truth. We're given the interpretation of what happened. You see, uh, it's right. If something bad happens to us, we cannot just say, oh, God did that in a sense. Uh, you remember the Lord Jesus said, well, is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? Uh, the reason he was, uh, had this uh, ailment? You know, we, to be careful, we're not superstitious in that respect. If things are going well, if I'm having a good day, then God's pleased with me. If things are going badly, oh, it must be God's displeased with me. We have to be careful to have such a simplistic view of things. But we're told here what God was about, what God was doing. In verse 13, the end of verse 13, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then when she comes back to Judah and they say, is this Naomi? She's aged, you see. You find that with people who go away from the Lord. They don't have that joy in their heart. And it shows itself. You may think that's silly, but I think it's true. It shows itself. There's this ageing. There's this sadness that comes upon someone who is constantly going against their saviour. You see, I take Naomi here to be a Christian. I understand her to be a Christian. I understand her to be one who was under the banner of God's grace and yet was deciding to go against him. A backslidden Christian then, you see. At what point is someone backslidden? At this point? At this point? It's a slippery slope, isn't it? And then what does she say to the people? Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. Why? For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She recognises this is God at work. She recognises God has taken her husband. She recognises God has taken her boys. And what does she say? Verse 21. I went away full. But full of what, Naomi? Full of self. Full of her plans. But she recognises what God has done. God has brought me home again empty. And then verse 22, the Lord has testified against me and the Lord Almighty has afflicted me. How do we, how do we understand this? You see, well, elsewhere in uh, the book of Hebrews, we're told, uh, my son, do not despise, Hebrews 12, verse 5, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. You see, the taking of uh, Marlon and Kilion and Elimelech, yes, there's judgment there, but can you see behind the scene, friends, there's mercy he doesn't leave Naomi where she is. He works and he brings her back to himself. Yes, she goes away full, but it's not a good fullness. She comes away empty. Oh, she's emptied of self. She's brought to her knees. She's brought to repentance. And she finally returns to the Lord. You see the mercy of God in that? Why do we need to know this? 
Well, because there may be some here. There may be some here who aren't happy. Christians now, those who are naming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're doing what is right in their own sight. They're making their own decisions. They're not seeking the Lord. Lord. They're not trusting Him. There's a difficulty in their life. And they're not saying, Lord, what would you have me do? They don't go to the Lord. They go to themselves. They panic. They make their own decisions. And in the name of uh, pragmatism, in the name of expediency, they say, but I must do this. You don't understand. I've got to do it this way. Oh, God doesn't tell us not to use our sanctified common sense. But it always must be first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Well, what's the turning point? Verse 6. And in the uh, NIV, it brings it out even stronger. The NIV has this last part of the verse first. It reads as thus. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. That's it, you see. That's the turning point. The wheels have come off her life. The husband's gone. The children's gone. She's in a foreign country. She's made a mess of her life. Can we put it in that way? Are there any here who feel they've made a mess of their life? Oh, friends, this could be you. The turning point. What's the turning point? She hears that the Lord has come to the aid of his people. How does she hear? She hears in Moab. How does she hear? We don't know. We're not told. But there's this providence of God. In the mercy of God, she hears that God. She's tried. How is it the hymn say it? She's tried the broken cisterns, Lord. Not even sure what that means. She's tried her ways. Useless. They mocked me as I wailed. Oh, but now she hears the Lord. And in humility, she begins to return. And from this point in verse 6, you'll notice the word return is a recurring theme throughout the whole chapter. And there's this pendulum. There's this pivot. It's not the loss of people. It's hearing that the Lord has come to the aid. It's hearing that still small voice is being brought to an end of herself. The Lord is chastising her. The Lord is is doing this against her. The Lord is afflicting her. Yes, but why? In order to bring her to that point where she says, not my will, but your will be done. In order to get her to stop doing it her way. And we know later on she has this propensity to it. We know her character. She tries to matchmake later on. We know there's a weakness there. But the Lord deals with with us where we're at. He deals with us as we are. And he's merciful to her. (coughs) Friends, if things in your life aren't going as you want, maybe the Lord is dealing with you. What did the Lord say to to Paul? Why do you kick against the goads? Maybe it is that the Lord is withdrawing his blessing. Maybe it is that the Lord is allowing affliction in order for you to be brought to that place where you say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And from that point then, she returns. Uh, She might return. Then she arose, verse 6, with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. Then we have verse 7. She went on the way or the road to return she's now traveling and then at the end of the chapter uh, verse 22 so Naomi returned what a triumphant chapter friends for Naomi you see it goes it starts off bad 
It gets worse. But there's that glorious turning point, that glorious crisis point where she's, where she's broken. And she returns. Friends, have you been broken? Have you been broken by the Lord? Have you been brought to that place where you recognize your way and your will doesn't equal happiness? Oh, you say, but no, if I was to write the script for my life, I would write it in such a way that it would be the best uh, happily lived ever after script that you could imagine. But friends, let me tell you, if you were to write that script and by hook or by crook you were enabled to live the dream, as we might say, oh, friends, you would find it isn't all that. But God's plans and purposes... Oh, now it takes some faith, it takes some belief, it takes some trust, it takes some understanding. But God's plans and purposes, why? Because God has written the script. He's the best script writer there is. The mysteries of providence, the wonder of his plans and purposes. God himself writing the script for our lives. Do you believe this, friends? Christian, do you believe this? Do you believe that God's will for your life equals the greatest happiness in your life? Or do you consider it to be a sacrifice to follow God's way and you're not going to be as happy as if you were to allow to be allowed to follow your own way? That's wrong. If you think like that, you're in error. You're overestimating your own abilities to write a happy script. You're underestimating who God is. You see, God doesn't, in his plans and purposes, he isn't some sort of mean-spirited God. He doesn't allow things to happen in our life, suffering and the like, because he thinks we ought to be taught a thing or two. God is overwhelming in his generosity toward us. God loves us with a perfect love. God wants our best. A parent who loves the child and is concerned for the child's welfare. What does that parent do? Does that parent cosset the child and wrap the child in cotton wool and squeeze the child in suffocation? No. A parent goes to their heavenly father and says, thank you, father, that you love my child even more than I love my child. Because your love is a perfect love. You don't make mistakes. Friends, God is more willing to bless you He's more willing to prosper you than you are to even be blessed. Do you believe that? That's the character of God, you see. And in this, we have this triumphant uh, situation with Naomi. Look at it. She returns. She returns. And look at the contrast. Again, the, 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 the way the book is written is, is wonderful. At the start, famine. Did you notice? At the end, the barley harvest is beginning. You see the difference? She's brought back empty. Oh, but now there's spiritual life beginning. You know, friends, do you realise you can go for years and years in your life, drifting, the spiritual doldrums? You may be outwardly getting more prosperous. You may think and interpret that as God blessing you. But you can be going nowhere as a Christian. You know, what would we think to someone? Let's say I've come back and it's been lovely to see some of the ones I uh, 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 taught at junior club and some of them are even taller than me. Oh, it's lovely. It's a tremendous privilege and blessing. But I wonder what uh, my reaction would be if I saw someone and uh, say when I left 
they were 11 and now come back, they're 18, but they were still in short trousers, they were still the same size, you'd be concerned, wouldn't you? Friends, we can be like that spiritually. I've been a Christian 25 years, but how old are you? Is there growth? Is there maturity? Paul says you're still on the milk of the word when you should be on the meat. Well, you see here, uh, she's brought to a reality of herself. Thank God that she is brought to the end of herself and she begins to trust. And now, watch out, because God takes over. She still, she still needs a hand tapping at times throughout the book of Ruth, but just look at it. At the end of the book, we'll go straight to the end of the book, Ruth 4, 14. She tells her friends, doesn't she? That's a good sign, page is turning, that's always a good sign. Uh, she, tells her, uh, she tells her friend, uh, friends, don't call me Mara, Naomi, because it's pleasant, call me Mara. And then right at the end of the book, what do they say? They call her Naomi. Never mind Mara, Naomi. Why? Because your life now is pleasant. More pleasant than it was before. What do they say? Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day. And then verse 15, your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons. You see, she was faced with this reality. I have no children to carry on the name. I'm old. I'm never going to have another husband. I'm never going to be able to bear children again. That's it. Done for. I've completely wrecked my life. You may think that, friends. Think about the psalm that we had. Did you realise those who are in their older years, do you just give up? Oh, no, friends. When you repent and you turn and you come back to the Lord, in reality to him, then what happens? Oh, he's able to make your latter years more glorious than your former years. Verse 17, there is a son born to Naomi. Can you see what God's doing? He's abundantly blessing Naomi. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Yes, she's still weak at times. But then if you read the book of Ruth, you notice what does God provide for her? He provides for her Boaz and her Ruth. Thank God that we're not saved in isolation. Thank God that when we have weaknesses... There may be our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us on the way. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of God's kindness. So Naomi starts off bad, ends up. What a triumph. You ready for more? Okay. Ruth. Let's look at Ruth. No, sorry. Let's look at Orpah. Just testing. Let's look at Orpah. Right. Let's not misunderstand this. You see, the situation that Naomi found herself in was a bad situation. Elimelech dies, Marlon dies, Kilion dies. And uh, for, for Naomi, that would always be a painful memory. Let's not sugarcoat that. There is such a thing as a consequence of sin. Think of David with Bathsheba. There were, he was forgiven, but there was still a consequence to his sin. There's a consequence of rebelling against God. If you continue in your rebellion against God from this day, there will be a consequence. You cannot consider and sort of do mental gymnastics and say, but if I repent at five minutes to midnight, five minutes before the Lord calls me home, it'll be all right. Two problems with that. One, you may not repent because the Lord might harden your heart. Two, why would you miss out on being with the Lord from this point forth? Doesn't make sense. There is never a gain, in other words, from not trusting God. You never gain from not putting God first. Does that make sense? 
You can't say to yourself, well, I'll spend my years at uni living at large and putting God last, and then afterwards I'll then begin to put him first. Because you, it, it, you miss out, okay? But that being said, God is able to use a situation for his glory. And in the providence of God, in this mess, God does that. And when Naomi is stirred, look what happens. Her two daughters-in-law are affected. Do you notice verse 6? She's stirred, and so her her daughters-in-law. In the providence of God, God uses Naomi where she's at, in the situation she's in, and he uses that for his glory. Isn't that marvellous? Isn't that wonderful? Again, backsliding Christian. Don't despair. When Satan tempts me to despair, you see, what will he do? He'll tempt you, and then he'll cause you to despair. He'll tempt you into sin, and then when you sin, he'll rub salt in the wound. In the providence of God, he uses this situation that Naomi is in, and he stirs her two daughters-in-law. And here we have these two daughters, these two daughters-in-law, and they're good girls, aren't they? They're kind they show hesed, that's a good name. They show hesed, they show kindness, they show unfailing love to Naomi. They're kind, they're conscientious, they're dutiful, they're good daughters-in-law. We accept that. And there's no obvious difference between the two. It's not that Ruth uh, is more prone to something or Naomi. There's no difference between the two. They're both the same and they're both good, conscientious daughters-in-law. And Naomi feels a sense of responsibility to them, and they feel a sense of love to Naomi. It's a lovely situation. We praise God for common grace. We praise God for people who, though aren't converted yet, are lovely people. But friends, it's not enough to be a lovely person. And we come then to a very dramatic scene. They've left Moab. They're on the road to Judah. And it's almost as though they're at a crossroads. And Naomi stops. And she says to them, go back. And in this sense, she almost acts as a type of Christ. You see in the Gospels when people would go after the Lord Jesus. And he almost seems to put barriers in the way. What's he doing? He's showing them that it's not an easy thing to follow him. You know when somebody says, become a Christian and all your troubles will go away. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so there's this reality, there's this stress testing, if you will. And there are three times she tries to convince them to go back. And she's thinking of them in many ways. And the first time we find in verses 8 to 10... And what does she say? She says, thank you for your kindness. She says, thank you for your kindness, but go and return to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And then she prays this prayer, which ironically is answered in Ruth's case later on. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And what's their response? Well, they weep aloud. They're moved. Spiritually speaking, they've been stirred at the same time when Naomi, that backslider, begins to return. They're affected. 
They're stirred. They see this change. It's as though Naomi's been converted all over again. And there's this impact on those close people to her. And they're stirred. And they go with her. And there's this crossroads. And at the first, when she says, go back. Go back to your mother's house. Thanks for dealing. Thanks for being kind. But go back. They're moved. They weep. And they say, we will go back with you. And then the second time, round two, verses 11 to 14. She's stronger this time. She says, she presents an argument. Okay, okay, if you're going to come with me, what does the future hold? Let's be real here. Am I going to marry somebody today and give birth to twins in nine months' time, given that I'm an older lady? Is that going to happen? And then are you going to wait for those uh, babies to grow up to be of marriageable age, age and then you're going to uh, become husbands to them so that you can continue this family name is that really going to happen in other words she begins to say look at what you're heading to look at what you're heading to first one is is why don't you just go back now look at what you're heading to an impossible situation a ridiculous situation I can't do anything. It's going to be hard. It's going to be unbelievably difficult. There's no earthly prospects. In fact, more than that, suffering most likely awaits. You're going into a foreign land. They don't deal with foreigners very well. You're going into a foreign land. Well, what's the response? Uh, remember John 6? The Lord does the same thing, really, when he begins to open up the truth. And John 6, 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back, back and walked with him no more. Oh, this is too hard a saying. This truth, this reality, this gospel reality. You see, it's one thing to have uh, Jesus Christ as your saviour, but the Bible demands at the same time you have him as your Lord. What does that mean? It means he's master. It means he comes first in everything. It means you follow him, come what may. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. That's it. I'm out. I'm gone. Friends, it's not enough to be stirred by the gospel. It's not enough to be moved by the gospel. It's not enough to even weep at your sins. Because Orpah does all that. And then even after that, she goes back. And where's she going back to? Well, we find in verse 15, Naomi tells us, she goes back to her people, back to her gods. She looks at the future, she looks at the past, she looks at the prospects, she looks at what she's come from. She can see with her eyes where she's come from. She can't see with her eyes where she's going to. She knows what she knows and she likes what she knows and she's comfortable with it, she knows. And it's better the devil you know, as she would say. Oh, there we go, you see. There's that, um, there's that earthly prospect. And when you talk about these spiritual things, well, it seems like it's a leap into the dark. It seems it's like a leap into the unknown. It seems too much to handle. I'll stay safe. Oh, but well done. You've made the pragmatic decision. Yes, Opa, you've got more opportunities to find a husband back home. You'll have a job there. You'll have some food there. You'll have your mum's house to go back to. And you won't get mistreated by some foreigners. She's so close. 
She's at the crossroads. She's been stirred. She's been moved. She's wept over her sin. And she comes to this point. And yet she's so far away. She goes back. And she goes back never to be heard of again. You don't hear of Oprah again. She's gone. She's vanished into the mist, never to be seen of or heard again. So close, Oprah, yet so far. And then there's the third time, final round, that Naomi uses to try and convince Ruth this time to go back. What does she say? Look, return after your sister-in-law. See, she's gone back. Why don't you? What's the difference, friends? What's the difference between Ruth and Orpah? Because we haven't seen anything in their temperament, in their character, even in their response to the gospel, as it were. What's the difference? Well, when push comes to shove, when the full reality of trusting in Jesus is presented to them both, Orpah says, enough, I'm out. I can't see it. She kisses her mother-in-law, but you have this glorious phrase in verse 14, but Ruth clings to her. The difference, you see? Peter, will you also go when the disciples, those disciples go? The going is getting tough. What are you going to do? I'm going to cling to you. Lord, <laughs> to whom shall we go? Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is no other way. You alone are the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, I can't see into the future. Yes, there's going to be difficulty. Yes, there's going to be sufferings. But what's the alternative? There is no alternative. What's that? It's faith. Ruth sees, as Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Orpah hasn't got that, has she? She can only see what she sees. She has no faith. Ruth sees the picture in an altogether different way. Yes, there's going to be difficulties. Yes, there's going to be sufferings. Yes, there's going to be hardship. But this is the only way. How do we have faith? Do you whip it up? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That's humbling, isn't it? What do you mean to say? God gave the gift of faith to Ruth and not to Orpah? Yes. But look at it the other way. Orpah chose to go back. Ruth chose to follow. Oh, friends. You see, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe it is your thinking... I'm addressing now the, the person who isn't yet a Christian. Maybe you're thinking there's going to be some kind of lightning bolt. Or maybe there's going to be some kind of, I don't know, if ever you're tired and you've been out somewhere and your feet are aching, you long, you think, oh, maybe somebody will come and pick me up. Have you ever had that? I used to be a lad walk, when you're walking home from school and you've had a long day at school and you're just hoping against hope that perhaps your mate's mum will drive past you and you'll look particularly forlorn and they'll take pity and you'll have a lift there. Oh, it'd be lovely. Nine times out of ten, it doesn't happen. You have to walk home. Friends, what are you waiting for? You see, it isn't the Christian life, isn't this kind of limousine, chauffeur-driven journey all the way to heaven. 
The Christian life is this. There's a declaration of the reality. The reality is, outside of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. There's no plan B. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. You see, we believe. How do we believe? It's a gift of God, but we respond. We don't wait for that gift to land on our lap. We respond even now to these words. Are you responding in your heart to these words? Are you responding and saying, yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is true. I see the truth of it. I see that Oprah's faded into oblivion. I don't want to fade into oblivion. I see that she chose the wrong way. I don't want to choose the wrong way. I'm afraid, Lord. I'm afraid of what the future holds. I'm afraid to put my trust in you but then I read and I hear that you are altogether trustworthy so help me to put my trust in you and all of a sudden what does God do he's prompted you by his Holy Spirit and as he draws you to himself as you take that first step you realize that it was him all along who was breathing life into you as he breathed life into Adam in the first times he breathes life spiritually into you so that you're able to receive this gospel with ears that now can hear you've been shrinned your ears have been shringed from the spiritual wax as it were so you hear this, this truth and then all of a sudden you don't see the obstacles as it were you just see the Lord Jesus Christ you just see him there who paid the ultimate price you just see him there who hung upon the cross and then was able to say in victory it is finished the one who then says come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest you see him and all of a sudden everything else blends into the background you see, why was Ruth able to say that wonderful confession of faith, which is what it is? Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. She could be speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. What's she saying there? This is for keeps. I'm committed. Come what may. It isn't until things go peak tong or wrong and then I turn away. This is forever. And I'm forever going to follow you. Come what may. Why? Because I believe you. Why? Because you are the way, the only way, the only hope, the only truth. Why? Because you've shown it in your death upon the cross. What a demonstration of love you see. That Jesus Christ would leave the splendors and glories of heaven and he would die a cursed death for you and for me. He's paid the price. The price he asks of us is never going to be greater. And do you know what? He's always going to supply the grace. How will we follow him? How will we keep in the race? How will we not turn into a Naomi and go backsliding? By grace. By grace you have been saved. What is grace? God's unmerited favour being bestowed upon you. How can I, if I make that decision to turn to him and follow after him, how can I keep going? By his grace, friends. Or, you see, then when God begins to speak to you, it becomes clear. The light bulbs come on. And so Ruth didn't need convincing. Ruth was keen as mustard. She clung to Naomi. She was up for it. That's what it means to become a Christian, friends. It's not some half-hearted. It's not some indecisive. It's not some pathetic uh, trusting the Lord. And it's not even our trust in him, but it's his hold upon us. It's not even how strong my trust is. Because the greatest of people, their strength will give out. You think of a little child, they're holding you, uh, you're holding them, and then they fall asleep. And their grip slackens. Oh, but you're still holding them. It's the same with a Christian. The Christian trusts. The Christian cries out. The Christian says, it is true. 
Lord, where can we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. There is no other option. There is no plan B. Oh, but I'm afraid. What if I fall and fail? Don't worry. Underneath are the everlasting arms. He who has begun a good work in you will see it through to completion. That's not a recipe for lethargy. That's the most motivational, wonderful, inspiring truth. Okay, in that case, Lord, I want you. I need you. I must have you. And there you take the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I've knocked on the door before, you say. Knock louder. He's waiting to hear from you. He wants you for himself. But he's a jealous God. He won't have half your heart. He wants all of you. Why? Because he shed blood for you, friends. He died on the cross for you. So that you might cry out to him and be saved. You are the apple of his eye. He loves you with an everlasting love. You are a treasured possession. But he must have your obedience. He must have your love. He must have your affection. Why? Because he loves you. What sort of marriage would it be? If a half-hearted husband and a half-hearted wife joined together, it wouldn't hold out much hope. Friends, there's no failing on Jesus' part. He loves you like a perfect husband. And he wants you for himself. Have you fallen in love with Jesus? The man who wrote that hymn, 820, said, I do believe, writing to his mate, that I love Jesus and I know Jesus better than any other person. Oh, you say, that's a bit full on. (laughs) Friends, he's our saviour. He's our Lord. We love him. Why? Because he died for us. He gave himself for us. And he loves us with a perfect love. He's attractive, if we can put it in that way. He is comely. He is beautiful. Great his person. Fair and ruddy. He is the loveliest of 10,000. The rose of Sharon, the gold of Ophir. He is beautiful to behold. And what's more lovely is that he even came into this dirty world to save us. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my life. My all. Ruth saw it. Have you? And she went into an unknown, impossible, humanly speaking, situation. What do we read in the first verse of the next chapter? God's providence. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. Spoiler alert if you've not read the book. She marries him, and it's a match made in heaven. And what of the offspring? Well, eventually, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ruth is in the line and lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. A Moabitess, a pagan, in the line and lineage of Messiah. Can you not see the overwhelming, overflowing goodness of God in that? Oh, friends, listen to the invitation. Jesus Christ says, Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come by without money. There's, it's a gift. It's not a cheap salvation. Those who say become a Christian, you'll be right forever after. It's a cheap salvation. It's a knockoff. It's a fake. It's counterfeit. It's not worth the money, it's the paper it's written off. This glorious gospel, this true gospel, this genuine article is priceless. And tonight, friends, it's being offered to you for free. What's your response? 
Oh, you are Naomi? You've made a mess of things. Don't delay. You hear the Lord. Come back to him. And your latter years can be more glorious than your former years. Are you an Orpah? You've been moved. You've wept. You've been stirred. So close yet so far. Never heard of again. Or are you a Ruth? You cling to Christ. You don't know how it's going to pan out, but you know that he's with you. And he's promised, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. What does it matter if we're with Christ? What's the worst that can happen? If we're with Christ, it will be okay. Because he is our Lord and our Saviour. And he'll never let us go. Amen.